0: Canada. Today's date is June 12th, 2022. Welcome to a full edition of Canadian Common Sense, Canada's Issues in Under an Hour. It is Tony in Saskatchewan flying solo today. Lewis is away. Now, I don't even mind telling you why Lewis is away today. Usually I don't, but he had the very good fortune of making his way to Vancouver with his family and attended a BC Lions game with his son yesterday. So not only is a little father-son time always a good thing, the BC Lions are back, baby, and that means the Canadian Football League is back. Now, the BC Lions have had a tough time with attendance the past number of years, and had it not been for David Braley, the last owner of the team, they may have folded years ago. Uh, They have a new ownership group in uh, B.C. It's actually one fellow that owns it, and he's passionate about the the CFL. He's passionate about the B.C. Lions. And, well, they actually opened the Upper Bowl in B.C. Place Stadium for the first time in a long time because they had a huge crowd yesterday. So fantastic to see the B.C. Lions are back drawing some fans into the stadium yes i know it's only the first game of the season but i am excited to have the cfl back uh my saskatchewan rough riders also played yesterday and the rough riders always draw a good crowd whether they're having a good year or not most often not so fantastic happy to have the cfl going again and on a father-son note today being june 12th well my son has a birthday today. So, happy birthday, young man. 21 years old. So, uh, man, I still remember him being born. It was, uh, I can remember it like it was yesterday. Nice sunny day as, uh, often you find in June. But, yep, my boy is now a f- full grown adult. So, uh, wow, time flies, eh? All right. So, On the show today, we have three, 72, 600,000, and more. I know, Tony, how can you get more than 600,000? Well, why don't we start talking about the and more part, and we'll make that more clear. How many of you out there in Canadian common sense land, the smartest radio or podcast listeners, I should say, in Canada, actually believe that our inflation rate is only 7.5%? Okay, I can't see any of you, but I'm pretty sure that all of you know, just by conducting your daily business, that the inflation rate in Canada is way higher than 7.5%. Now, we've pointed out to you on this show in the past that the price of energy and housing are not calculated into the inflationary numbers of the Consumer Price Index in Canada. Regardless, even without that, the inflation rate is easily double of that 7.5%. And you know that just by going to the grocery store. If they factored in energy and housing into the CPI, it would be absolutely obscene. Now, housing has begun to soften up a little bit because of interest rates creeping up. And we will talk about that a little bit too. But energy, as you can see, look at the gas pump. Yeah, if they included energy into our, our inflation rates and our consumer price index, it would be astronomical. But myself, anecdotally, of course, because it was just me out shopping, most of the things I buy at the grocery store have gone up 20 to 30% just this year, in this year alone. And that's really just in the last couple of months. And that's tough. That's very tough. And it's very tough for people who are younger and just starting out, some who have you know, are struggling to stay afloat, living on their own. And, you know, maybe in an apartment they can barely afford, maybe driving a vehicle they can barely afford to keep. And it's hard. And we discussed on our last show, or perhaps a previous show, the latest figures I'd heard was 57% of Canadians can't make ends meet. They don't know how they're going to pay all their bills. And that's, Awful, And I'm sure that number is even higher now because that statistic is well over a month old. So I'm willing to bet we're in the 60% range now of Canadians who don't know how they're going to make it, don't know how they're going to pay their bills. That's shameful. That's absolutely shameful. And what's even more shameful in a first world country like Canada is that now I'm reading that there are Canadian families and, well, largely Canadian adults who are actually skipping meals and generally eating less in order to save money so that they can afford their grocery bill. I'm going to repeat that just because it bothers the hell out of me. There are Canadian families in a first world country we keep being told we are a rich country, we are a high-income country, which I think is just language being used to shame us to be embarrassed and ashamed of our own prosperity, but I digress. In a high-income country, quote-unquote, there are people who are skipping meals and generally eating less so that they can afford their grocery bill, and I know of people who have stopped buying, I won't say luxury items, but stopped buying certain foods that they just like to treat themselves with because they can't afford it. There are people that I know who go shopping and put things back on the grocery shelf when they see what the price has gone up to. There are people in this country who are literally becoming Venezuelans. The average Venezuelan, since the socialists took power, has lost 20 pounds. Well, if Canadians are skipping meals and generally eating less, I guess we're all going to start losing some of that COVID weight as well. And that's not always a good thing. Yes, I get it. Everybody says, oh, I could afford to lose a few pounds. And a lot of us probably can. But this is not the way to do it. It's absolutely shameful that in a country like canada who feeds the world with a lot of our agricultural products cannot feed its own citizens because it's too bloody expensive and now uh now we'll talk about the price of gas and the housing market that we i referred to earlier Price of gas is awful now. Here in Saskatchewan, the cost per liter of gas has now crested two dollars officially. Two o six point nine in Saskatoon and Regina. Uh, some of the smaller communities are a couple of cents less, but that's disgusting. And my wife and I actually took a staycation to a uh, a little resort about an hour outside of Saskatoon this weekend and talking about that very price of gas, she asked, well, is it going to go back down? And, well, I don't have good news for you on that front, Canada, because the refineries, the oil companies in Canada, are just now starting to work in Justin Trudeau's second carbon tax. And I've talked about his second carbon tax before, this is the clean fuel standard tony what is the clean fuel standard the clean fuel standard dictates and i talked about this on a show long ago last year that the clean fuel standard when implemented and it will be implemented in december will bump up the price of gas and Dan McTagg from uh canadians for, for affordable energy that said it will be about 16 cents a litre on gasoline that this clean fuel standard will add once it is implemented. Well, it's a regulation, so it's not even something that can uh, can be repealed. But once companies start to do it and follow that, it makes little sense for them to reverse course. So what the clean fuel standard dictates is that the oil companies must use as little carbon as possible when they are creating fuel from, or refining fuel, I should say, from, from petroleum. And for the more carbon intensive they are, they will have to buy carbon offsets from the government. So in other words, they have to pay the government additional carbon tax at $300 a ton. Yeah, and we're paying $50 a ton right now for carbon tax, which adds about 11 cents per liter by itself. So now if the oil companies have to add components at $300 a ton, I'm sure that 16 cents a liter that Mr. McTaggart is predicting, projecting is probably pretty accurate because obviously they're not going to be creating every liter of gasoline or diesel fuel with their $300 carbon offsets. I'm sure there's going to be some, you know, lower carbon inputs they can utilize, but yeah, brace yourself, Canada, because that's coming. And because they're already changing the way they they make fuel now and already doing the research and starting the process because they have to be fully compliant by December, well, the price of gas is, and, and diesel is going to continue to go up because, well, the cost will always get passed on to the consumer. So... I had to tell my wife, and now I'm telling the rest of you, Canada. The cost of fuel will go down once the price of oil drops back down to kind of where it regularly sits in the $60 to $90 range. But the price for a liter of fuel in Canada is not likely to go down equally with the price of oil. Because of this second carbon tax, and because Justin Trudeau continues to increase the first carbon tax every April. I know I've been enjoying that carbon tax increase every year, even though our cost of living continues to go up without that. But we are going to get nailed with that again and again and again. Now, we had referred to this a couple of years ago. There was a news conference where Justin Trudeau was in Vancouver. And he said the quiet part out loud and the quiet part out loud was that he wants to see higher fuel prices because he wants Canadians to quote, change their behaviors and more of his condescending gobbledygook as far as I'm concerned. But yep, he wants Canadians to change their behaviors and he sees higher gas prices as a good thing because it helps fulfill his radical climate change agenda. It helps people to be so poor from trying to buy gas for their vehicles that they will go into further debt to buy electric vehicles that they can't afford, or start using public transit, or start riding bicycles, which is highly impractical for a large percentage of Canada's population. But trust fund millionaires who get into politics and have everything provided for them, don't give a crap about little people like you. So get ready, Canada, and watch those gas prices continue to stay high and understand that Justin Trudeau doesn't care one bit because he's clueless. He's never actually had to pay for anything. He doesn't actually know how to balance a checkbook he thinks budgets balance themselves so as we always say buckle up this ride's not going to be a fun one and hey um lewis and i are right on that ride with you i mean lewis has a has a diesel pickup i have a a gas pickup and sure it's got fuel efficiency going for it but i can't afford to fill up from empty to full at one stop because it would cost me Well, close to 300 bucks now. So I'm only filling it up only $50 at a time. Well, that hurts enough. And who it really hurts is the lowest income Canadians that the Liberal Party of Canada continues to say they're standing up for. Well, we know that's full of crap. And now we'll get into some of the show topics, to more show topics to continue to let you know how much, Justin Trudeau is full of crap. The number three that I introduced in the, the show topics today. Well, Omar Al Gabra and also the, um, I believe it was the Minister of Health, were suggesting that perhaps it's time to reevaluate and perhaps change the number of COVID shots. And the definition of fully vaccinated means. I know COVID hasn't really been in the news that much lately because, well, we're sort of past COVID being a problem, but now there's a suggestion that, well, perhaps we should consider three vaccine shots to be considered fully vaccinated. Now, not just two anymore. I have to ask why, um, When Omicron struck, was first discovered in South Africa, you heard Lewis say right here on the air that, well, really, this is the beginning of the end, because the virus is showing itself to be pretty ineffective. Omicron was a yawn fest. Omicron was a nothing burger. So that was actually very true. I mean, it did do some damage, but very, very little, and... We moved on. Now anybody who wants to get a booster shot, go right ahead. You want to get two, three, nineteen booster shots, you go right ahead. Why would we change what it means to be fully vaccinated when the two shots, possibly even no shots, were doing the trick? I have two shots. I now regret getting them. If I was to do it over again, I would not get them. I would just have sucked it up and not gone to a restaurant for a few months. But regardless, can't change history. I've mentioned on this show that I will get boosted at gunpoint. I am not getting any more shots. Lewis has said the same, that he will not get any more shots. And why would we? Why would any of you have to go and get a third shot providing you haven't got one already that is to say you're fully vaccinated against something that even the rabid leftist media is no longer talking about because they can't keep us scared of it anymore omicron showed us that we have beat this thing it already fizzled itself out so why the fear well it helps support the Liberal Party's narrative to punish those who have gone against the groupthink. And when I talk about that, well, anybody who's been through Pearson Airport, or at least like me, is reading about and hearing about how awful the lineups are at airports, especially Pearson, because it is Canada's busiest airport. Then you'll understand. The government wants you scared. They want to suggest, oh, maybe you'll need three shots Because right now, thankfully, they've at least adapted some common sense and they're going to curtail the the testing, the random testing of international passengers. But Canada being Canada, being the only Western nation who still has a vaccine mandate for flights and a mask mandate on international and domestic flights, that's going to stay. Even though people with two shots, I guess, can still fly, you'll still have to wear a mask. If they decide to change that to three shots to be fully vaccinated, how many Canadian travelers are suddenly grounded? How many international travelers will suddenly have to do the old COVID quarantine? Now, as of July 1st, the all, all the COVID testing will be done off-site from airports, which should help speed things up for the lineups at the airport and it's just going to move those lineups to whatever testing facilities off-site the government chooses to designate. So imagine if suddenly the rules change that we need three shots. You're going to have international travelers who will just say, okay, we're not going to Canada. And they're saying that now just because of what a joke it is to get get through Pearson Airport. And it's just going to exacerbate the current problems. I mean, they certainly won't have the the issues at airports as much when Canadians aren't traveling, but it's just going to spiral down into exacerbating the recession that I think we all know is coming. But because of ideology, the Trudeau government might very well say, and, the, and Omar al-Gabra had, had already sort of telegraph this and well in the fall you know there could be another way of coming and teresa tam of course is right right in lockstep could be another way of coming and maybe it will be necessary to upgrade the definition of fully vaccinated what what say me i say take your new definition of fully vaccinated and shove it right up your uh, ass <clears throat> Government of Canada. All right, let's move on to the number 72, shall we? 72 is the number of orders in council that the Government of Canada, that meaning the Trudeau Liberal Government, has classified in their six and a half years in office. 72 orders in council are... I guess subject to the good old cabinet confidentiality. 72 orders in council that the opposition doesn't know about, that the legal system doesn't know about, that only the cabinet knows about because they've been kept secret from Canadians. Now, doing some research, it appears that there are most governments will have a few a year, by a few I mean three or four orders in council that are secretive, and some of them are for very mundane things. Some of them, they are orders in council on simple things like MP travel or sort of mundane workings, intermachinations of government. And okay, fine, but this government has proven itself to be completely untrustworthy when it comes to its orders in council, hello, Mr. Gunban of 2020, that they still can't figure out. And when it comes to the Freedom Convoy, I'm wondering exactly how many orders in council apply to this that are secret cabinet confidences. We've already heard, ad nauseum, and for that matter, the Freedom Convoy inquiry and I actually have to give a shout out to Justice Rouleau. When this this inquiry first started, especially when the government had laid the parameters out that they had laid, that the judge was essentially going to be investigating the convoy and not the government, I think Justice Rouleau decided that he didn't want to be seen as a liberal stooge who was going to do what he was told by Justin Trudeau because he has actually said, no, we actually need to Look into the government's response on the convoy, and you have heard a lot—not only on our show, but even in the, in some of the lamestream media—about well, our serial liar Marco Mendicino, the Minister of Public Safety, over and over and over, saying that they invoked the Emergencies Act on the advice of law enforcement. Well, we know that's BS. And we heard David Lametti saying, Oh, well, I can't share with you our 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 machinations and our reasons on the convoy because of matters of cabinet confidence. You heard Commissioner of the RCMP, Brenda Lucky, try to hide behind cabinet confidence as to why she was not able to release information. And she was reminded by a conservative MP on the committee that she is not a member of cabinet. So, therefore, cabinet confidence does not apply to her. So she has decided to say nothing, which in itself is rather indicting. So, what orders in council that apply to the invocation of the Emergencies Act are we not hearing about that are part of these 72 Secretive orders in council. I don't know about you, Canada. I don't have any confidence in our cabinet or our government whatsoever. And I want to know what some of these 72 secret orders in council are. And it sounds like Justice Rouleau wants to know some of those too when they're pertaining to the freedom convoy. And It's going to be interesting to see if and when he gets some of those, because already we've already seen the narrative fall apart on the government's end for the Freedom Convoy. The arson at the apartment building, nothing to do with the Freedom Convoy. The lady dancing on the war memorial, nothing to do with the Freedom Convoy. She was from Quebec. The arsonists were from Ottawa. Nothing to do with the Freedom Convoy whatsoever. They tried to paint them as a bunch of white supremacists, racist, misogynists. Well, that one fell apart when Rupa Supermania reported in the National Post that, no, no, this was actually kind of like a street party. And, well, what do you know? Very colorful street party because a lot of folks in the trucking business are Indian. And I'd pointed that out before because I'm actually in the trucking business. And then, what do you know? You and I and most average Canadians, decided to check their social media, look at YouTube, look at some Facebook Live videos, for example, and see that, oh, what do you know? It's actually what Rupert Rup- Supermania said. It actually was a street party with a completely multi-ethnic flavouring to it. You had a lot of Indian drivers who were sick saying that they... uh they were not white supremacists. As you could tell, they were not even white. And they would joke about it. Yeah, oh ha! I'm a white supremacist. And you heard them calling out Justin Trudeau and Jagmeet Singh. Now, the government is looking worse and worse on the Freedom Convoy inquiry itself. And the whole Emergencies Act invocation is falling apart on them. Because now it looks like what you and I knew all along, it was invoked because of a vindictive government that got caught with its pants down because the arrogant boob at the head of that government wrote off the, the convoy because they weren't subscribing to the groupthink. And I hope to hell that whoever's idea it was to freeze bank accounts, for example... And I'm looking right at you, Christian Freeland. The way you had that smug little smirk on your face when you talked about your giving the panks that power. I'm hoping you get called to the carpet for that. Am I confident that will happen? No. But to be fair, I also wasn't confident when the Freedom Convoy inquiry started that it was going to be anything more than an inquiry into the Freedom Convoy itself. Right now, that's proving to be, well, Proving, proving me wrong, because Justice Rouleau actually says we need to look at the government's reaction. So right on, Justice Rouleau. I hope that you, uh, you follow through and actually hold the government to account. Okay, let's talk about 600,000. That is a huge number, no question about that. 600,000 is said to be the number of members that the Conservative Party of Canada currently boasts. Now, 600,000 is a record that is the largest number of membership for a political party in Canadian history. And naturally, because of that number of memberships, it is also the largest number of members who can be voting for a leader. Of a political party in Canada, I'm not certain why those two stats had to be separated by the by the news media, but is what it is. I'm just bringing you the facts. Six hundred thousand people. Now, this is allegedly. This these are preliminary numbers because the party has to verify all the memberships, and once they do that, then they'll give us a final number sometime in July. Now, six hundred thousand is huge. Now, a little bit of history lesson. In 2013, when Justin Pierre Trudeau was running for the leader of the Liberal Party of Canada, when they were giving memberships away, they decided that they would not ask for any kind of fee. Anybody who wanted a Liberal Party membership got one for free. With that, with free memberships being signed up for the Liberal Party in 2013, Justin Trudeau was able to sign up 150,000 members across Canada. And the mainstream media gushed over that at the time. It's Trudeau mania. Look at the momentum he has. People are ripe for Justin Trudeau. And well, they uh, they sold it well that he was this amazing agent for change. And honestly, they helped him win an election in 2015, so I guess they weren't wrong. But uh, the 150,000 memberships that he was able to convince people to take for free pales in comparison to the reported 312,000 memberships that one Mr. Pierre Poiliev has signed up. Yes, Pierre Poiliev has signed up three. 112,000 members to the Conservative Party himself. Now, the party membership for the Conservatives was about 168,000 at the beginning of this leadership race. With Pierre Poiliev signing up 312,000, Patrick Brown claims to have signed up 150,000, and the other campaigns haven't disclosed how many they've managed to sign up. So this number if these two front runners are honest with their, their numbers, well, that number probably might, would go higher than 600,000. So it's going to be interesting to see where the numbers come up. Now, here's the mainstream media bias when it comes to the 600,000. Number one, they're skeptical about it. Number two, they, uh, of course, I have to write Pierre Polyev off. Now, Pierre Polyev has sold 312,000 memberships at $15 a piece, not giving them away, selling memberships for $15 out of people's pockets, and they've still pulled the money out, 312,000 of them. And put that in perspective, if indeed the number stays at 600,000 members, There's $9 million into the Conservative Party of Canada's election fund. Now, they've already got a a few million from the candidates for the leadership. So, the Conservative Party is going to be very, very well set for the next election, whenever that's going to be. But at 312,000 members, Pierre Poiliev has almost got this one locked up on the first ballot. And I'll actually talk a bit more about that shortly. But I want to stay on the, the membership numbers for a minute here. Now, the mainstream media, and we've seen this when, about Pierre Polyev rallies, and you saw that I had put up a, a panoramic picture of the Polyev rally in Saskatoon not long ago, that there was a huge crowd. And of course, like every other Polyev crowd, the mainstream media has to find anything they possibly can and say, "Oh well, there's so many white faces they're just disaffected old stock Canadians they are just a bunch of racists they're they're just these old white men well, number one, there's nothing wrong with being an old white guy i mean that's uh that's what a lot of political animals are, and I know that for myself the uh the friend that I was there with, who just happens to be First Nations, not that that matters to me, but it certainly matters to the mainstream media. She certainly didn't consider herself to be an angry old white dude. She is an angry middle aged First Nations lady who just happens to have a thing for Pierre Polyev, just like I do. But that doesn't matter to me. It probably doesn't matter to conservatives in general. Conservatives are happy to have people who are excited about the Conservative Party the word disaffected doesn't have to appear unless you're the mainstream media. Then you've got to call out and say, oh, these are just angry, disaffected people, and Pierre Polyev is just a populist, and they try to make that sound like it's a bad word. What a populist is, is actually somebody who just wants to represent, well, the people. Who'd have thought he doesn't want to represent the, uh, the Laurentian elites and actually wants to find out what you think? Well, how about that? Well. 312,000 of you have told him that, yeah, you know what, Pierre, we like the way you think. And as a side note, Mr. Polyev, I waited in line for an hour and a half to meet him when at a Saskatoon rally with one simple question. Why won't you do Canadian common sense? I've sent several interview requests. Why do you keep ignoring me? And, well, When asked that question, he handed me off to his assistant who gave me a card and I emailed him. And of course, I have not heard back from the press secretary as of yet. So there may not be a Pierre Polyev interview coming because he's actually not interviewing with, with anybody right now, to be fair. But we're still on the case. Anyway, that side note aside, let's talk a little bit about the whole balloting idea. Now, it's been discussed... And this, of course, is the mainstream media. And this is why I think people don't have any faith in mainstream media at all in this country anymore. Because when I listen to the power and politics of the world, and of course, it's a CBC show. They're all leftists. And Pierre Polyev has already said he will be defunding the CBC. So they obviously have no love for him. Well, less love for him than they had before. And they had no love for him even before he announced he wanted to run for prime minister. So the CBC, of course, says, oh, well, you know, Pierre Polyev might not have enough votes to win the leadership on the first ballot. Well, with the ranked ballot system, it's usually unlikely that any candidate will have enough votes to win on the very first ballot. But if Pierre Polyev does not, then we have to get down ballot support. Now, we talked about this, Lewis and I, on a the previous show that in order to win, not only do you have to have enough people voting for you as your first choice, <coughs> excuse me, you also have to hope that people who have chosen other candidates as their first choice will then rank you as their second choice. Because after the first ballot voting is done, the candidate with the least number of first place votes will be removed from the ballot. Then in the second round of counting, It starts to matter who counts candidate X as their second choice to help propel them to victory. I think Pierre Polyev is going to have enough support to do that. I think he's going to have enough first ballot support where he's going to be very close. And I think there will be enough of other candidates, people who will rank him as their second choice so that they can, well, so that he will will be successful on the second ballot but of course the mainstream media is saying oh no everybody hates pierre Pauli as much as we do so if not for his bunch of rebels and miscreants who are voting for him on the uh, on the first ballot he's going to be lost and john charay or patrick brown is going to sneak by and pass him on the on the third or fourth ballot and he'll be gone well I don't see that happening. Now, there's now 312,000 people signing up. Memberships with Pierre Polyev does not mean Pierre Polyev is going to get 312,000 first ballot or first ranked ballots. A lot of the people he signed up may not even vote. So even if he gets, let's say he gets 275,000 of those votes and they are first place votes. I mean, this right now is a period where all campaigns have to convince members to switch to their side. So perhaps some of those people who signed up for Pierre will suddenly say, oh, well, actually, you know what? I think I might like Leslie Lewis, or I think I might like Roman Baber." And that one I've actually heard a lot of people say. So there's no guarantee that the members you sign up are going to be people who will vote for you. Patrick Brown just learned that right after the deadline for memberships on June 3rd two MPs that had previously endorsed Patrick Brown switched to Pierre Polyev's camp. So anything is possible. I believe that Pierre Polyev is going to do it. I don't know if it would be a first ballot victory, but I I believe he has much more support than the mainstream media gives him credit for. And go to one of his rallies uh, if you have the chance. I mean, it was great to be able to go to a rally right in my home city and actually listen to the ideas Pierre Polyev has and actually see how the crowd reacts to him. And you can see he has support of very ordinary Canadians. And honestly, our leaders in Ottawa have forgotten that. Patrick Brown doesn't care about the support of very ordinary Canadians. Jean Charest looks down on very ordinary Canadians, like every Liberal does, and... You've seen the the, the, the the Liberal Party in power could not give two craps about very ordinary Canadians. So I think Pierre Polyev has actually caught on to something that the elites in the Laurentian Triangle haven't caught on to and honestly could not care less about. So I'm thinking Pierre Poiliev is going to be able to pull it off And as Conservative leader, with a huge election war chest and his normal combative style that he's, well, well known for in the House of Commons, I see good things. I never want to get too high in the predictions game, but I always hold out some hope. All right, Canada, we've got a few more minutes here. I do want to touch very briefly on another leadership race happening in Conservative circles in Canada. And that is the United Conservative Party of Alberta, the leadership race. Jason Kenney has stepped down as leader and will remain as interim leader until a new leader is chosen. You've heard all that already. And you know I strongly endorse Danielle Smith, biased partially because I've always liked her, biased partially because her and I had a very good interview on this show, and also because I really like what she has to say. But There are going to be a ton of choices, Canada. So uh, for those of you in Alberta who are UCP members or are considering signing up, know that you will have not only Brian Jean, who's actually having an event very soon to uh, announce his candidacy formally, you'll have Danielle Smith, again, who I'm going to endorse. I'm not speaking for Lewis nor for Canadian common sense, but I am certainly endorsing her myself. You'll have now Travis Taves, who I believe is the finance minister in Alberta. You're going to have Todd Lowen, who was one of the MLAs who was kicked out of caucus, who has decided he is going to run for leader. I can't remember the name of the gentleman's name now, but he is the mayor of Amisk, Alberta. Amisk is a very small town in east-central Alberta, not far from Hardesty. Hardesty, of course, is one of the major oil pipeline hubs in Canada um that is five i know there are a couple more who have yet to announce who are going to basically you're going to have a huge swath of candidates who claim they are interested just like when with the national conservative party of canada and then once it actually gets down to brass tacks and they've got to start putting up money they've got to start putting up signatures you're probably going to be down to about five or six candidates. I would suggest that Lowen, Taves, Smith and Gene for sure are going to be in there. The others like the mayor of Amisk, for example, who believes that the UCP is not doing enough to address rural issues, which is why he's running, by the way. And he could be right. He could be right because even Danielle Smith was saying that, you know, we need to, to listen to urban Albertans but you also need to represent rural concerns. So she's She's at least acknowledged that, yes, rural, rural Alberta is important, but she's also acknowledged that, well, the power lies in the cities. So she gets it. And this, this gentleman obviously gets it too, and I say kudos to him for representing the rural interest, by the way. But that race is shaping up to be, well, I think it's going to be exciting. I think you're going to have four or five very, very strong candidates, well-known people, strong voices, and I think it's going to be similar to the federal leadership race. I hope it's a lot shorter of a leadership race, but I think it's going to end up generating a lot of interest, a lot of memberships, and I have to say may the best candidate win. All right, Canada, I'm going to leave it there. I want to thank you very much for joining me today, and Lewis will be back next week. And until then, it is Tony in Saskatchewan. Have a great night, Canada. Tony.